I was just like reading my own notes and then I got like excited like oh my god you have the kind of same thoughts as me oh wait they're my notes never mind (laughs) (laughs) oh it always helps doesn't it when you agree with yourself (laughs) yeah we're on the same page (laughs) hi I'm Sophie hi I'm Mark and this is you know what I like where we sit down each week and flail about something we're unhealthily obsessed with You know what I like? Neil Gaiman's Stardust. Neil Gaiman's Stardust began life as a four-issue miniseries comic illustrated by Charles Vess. In 1999, it was then released into the form which most people are familiar with, a traditional novel. The novel was later adapted into a film released in 2007 and helmed by Michael Vaughan. It features stars such as Daredevil's Charlie Cox as Tristan, Claire Danes as the fallen star Yvain, Michelle Pfeiffer as Lamia, and many more. In this episode, we're going to talk about both the book and the film, as well as our thoughts on adaptations in general. It takes place in the fictional town called Wall, named after the wall that the inhabitants can pass across once every nine years to visit the fairy market. We follow our protagonist Tristan Thorne, a young man who sees a falling star land in fairy and vows to find it and bring it back for his true love, Victoria Forrester. Little does he know that in fairy, stars are living creatures and he's not the only one on a quest to discover her. So, to begin with... What is your experience with Neil Gaiman slash Stardust? I pose to you, Mark. Okay. I feel like I've just learned like a lot about Stardust. Like I'm just from like um hearing you say that like brief introduction. Towards my intention. <laughs> <laughs> like um, I didn't know that it was a comic first. I actually have to admit that I didn't know it was a comic first until I was doing prep for this episode. I okay. knew that there were um, illustrations that are often accompanied with it, but I didn't realise that was because it was originally, like, a small comic. Oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, which I think is interesting when you think about the fact that it has been adapted into a film, because, it might, like, in its original form, it did have a visual accompaniment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's quite interesting that it now has become, like, a visual piece of media. Yeah, okay. My past experience with it, like, um, I know that I watched it, like, ten or so years ago. Like, when it first came out, I'm pretty sure that I watched it on DVD or something, um, or on TV. And, like, um, I can remember that I enjoyed it. So then, like, I've thought since then, like, um, every time that I've, like, heard it mentioned, I've been like, um, I like that film. Yeah. So then to like um, come back to it now, um, I was like, I really hope I still like it. I really hope I still like it. <laughs> Do you have any other experience with Neil Gaiman or is it just watching Stardust? I have read um, American Gods. Oh, okay, because American Gods is one of my favourites of him. I think I like it more than I like Stardust. But So why are we doing on Stardust? Because I wanted this episode to sort of be a counterpoint to my last episode that I chose, which was the Troy Iliad sort of interrelationship, which we agreed was a very bad adaptation and a bad film. (laughs) So I kind of wanted to like counteract that with this episode, which is a book that I think is great and a film that I think is great that are both that's like a good adaptation. So I sort of wanted to do like a this is how you don't do an adaptation. This is how you do do an adaptation. Okay. Yeah. I thought it would be a, I'm into that. Yeah, I thought it'd be like a nice comparison. So um so yeah, so is that the only Neil Gaiman that you've read? Yeah, like I've read a lot of comics, but 
I feel like I've not ever read anything that um he's written, like which I feel like is like a bit like sacrilegious. <laughs> but like because um he's written um Sandman, like which is like a really really famous comic yeah. that he's written, which I've just like never got around to. Like um like um, everything that I've read of his, I've really liked. Yeah. But but for some reason I've just not like tracked them down. I've never read Sandman, although it is on my to-read list. I've mostly read, like, his novels and stuff. But I've read, um, I'd say, like, a a handful of novels. I could count them on one to two hands. But okay. there's still a lot of his work, which I haven't read. But um, I, I would consider myself a fan, but not, like, a, a, a massive expert. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm the same, to be honest. Yeah. As extra preparation for this episode, we did also ask our Twitter followers to find out their opinion on Stardust. So we tweeted and asked how everyone felt about Stardust as a book-to-film adaptation. So um, 67% said that it was a great adaptation, they loved it. 17% said it was good, but they enjoyed the book more. And 16% didn't enjoy it. We also asked for examples of films that are better than their book counterparts, and if you would like to see those answers, you can head over to our Twitter, which is at YKWIL podcast, um, which was really interesting, actually. I feel like I've massively increased my to-read and to-watch lists, but um, mainly I just wanted to sort of like pepper that in, because it seems there's like a general consensus that Stardust is actually like a good book-to-film adaptation, which I think is quite rare. Because I think yeah. I think most of the time people are always like, oh, the book was better. Whereas I think this is one of those rare cases when most people, on the whole, do generally seem to be like, yeah, they did well. Yeah, like, from my experience, like, um, it's the pretty um, common complaint, I think, like, where it's like, um, because the book has, like, a lot more, like, time and space that you get, like, a lot more time to, like, flesh out the background and, like, yeah. deal with things in, like, a more slow and mannered way. Like, whereas, like, with films, like, um, especially, like, big Hollywood films, like, there's, like, far more, like, of a need to, like, go, 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 go. Yeah. Like, beat, 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 beat. Like, whereas with, like, a lot of books, you, like, you can like take that time to like step back and like um explain like more of how the world works and like give more of that context yeah i wanted when i was planning for this i sort of was thinking about as well as like my general thoughts on it and everything i was trying to like consciously be like okay like as an adaptation what are features of an adaptation that i think this has captured and like I sort of like agree with you there it sort of does that thing where you have to change plot points in order to adapt it because yeah. you know that's how adaptations work yeah like um different things are like good in um different mediums yeah so it does that thing where it successfully adapts it which means it does change the plot and stuff like this but it still manages to like retain the essence yeah which is what so often is lost in an adaptation is because of the difficulty of trying to transpose it from like words to visuals sometimes you lose sort of the soul of what made it so great whereas i think in this even though they do make some big changes to plot and stuff like that i still do think they sort of manage to like retain the stardust like core that runs throughout it what would you say is like the core um of the book then 
Um, the core of the book to me, I think one of the things that they did really well, which retained that, was the way in which the film does draw on sort of that fairy tale element that exists there. So, mm-hmm. like, Stardust is... So, like, the first line of Stardust is, There was once a man who wished to gain his heart's desire. And, like, just as that as an opening, like, you can really tell there is this fairy tale, as well as it being set partially in, like, fairy. Like, mm-hmm. it also has, like, a fairy tale quality to the way it's told. And then when you compare that to how the film opens, the film opens with Ian McKellen as a narrator, as, like, doing that same thing where he's narrating it and every now and then he pops up and adds that bit of narration, which I feel really draws on that same fairy tale feeling yeah um it's like it's being read from a book yeah like have you seen the princess bride i have yeah you know how it's like his granddad is reading it to him and every now and then that like breaks up the narrative and his granddad returns yeah like ian mckellen's sort of that figure for this okay and i just thought like just as like an initial start point that was something which i felt quite captured that spirit Oh yeah, I had um, another point I wanted to sort of ask you about, because another one of my, like, ooh, this is an adaptation points Mm -hmm. was, I think something they did well was that, to my perspective, it stands on its own quite well without you having knowledge of the book, and I just wanted to check with you that that was the case. (laughs) Yeah, like, um, I don't feel like um, I missed out on anything. Yeah. Like, I'm sure there are details where, like, um, if you come into it, like, with that background and that context, like, then you can see, like, more of the world that, like, that you don't see in the film. I actually don't think that's the case for this because the plot, the core plot is sort of the same, but a lot of, they take out a lot of what happens in the book for the film. The film, they, like, simplify it a lot and then go different places with it so um i think this one in particular i wouldn't say you gain much more by watching it with knowledge of the book i think they're sort of two separate entities that are linked rather than being like a direct adaptation okay like um by that i mean with the characters like in some like um in some adaptations like you see like some characters like like who have like two lines in the film and then like 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 you know their background like from the book like the main example that um comes to mind is um that book that's about that um ties into Star Wars um episode 6 oh, and I there's like one book that like spends the whole time uh, you know in um Jabba's palace yeah. in 6 like it goes through um each character and it like gives them all like a backstory. Yeah. So these like random characters like who are in one scene, like most of whom um don't have names, get this like fleshed out like backstory and everything. Yeah. Just um in the book. So so like I feel like like for instance um um in this one, like the red headed witch. Like I always felt like like there was more like going on there than we saw. See there are, I wouldn't say that I know more about her because I've read the book because mm. I think I probably maybe have a slightly better understanding of what 
the Lilim are supposed to be. So that's like the three women from okay. the book. But you don't really get much more about either of the other two witches. It is mm-hmm. sort of all about that main one. And like, are there any char- are there any other characters that you'd say like, oh, like I didn't really. I would have liked to know more about this character because most of them, most of what they've done when adapting this is just take out a lot of characters. Okay. They haven't really, like, simplified characters necessarily. They've just removed a lot of excess ones and they've focused okay. on fewer. Okay. But they've probably focused on them to a similar degree. Okay. Well, like, one big question that I had is more about the, like, causality of the magic of the world okay (laughs) so like so my question is like so the main plot of the three main witches of um michelle pfeiffer and those other two yeah when they use magic they get older yeah but you see the red-headed witch and tristan's mother like using magic but they're fine that's I'd say that's because they're different things. Okay. And this potentially is an area in which the book's given me a bit more knowledge because the three witches in the book they don't have names, but they're the Lilim. Okay. And they're very old, very ancient. Whereas Ditchwater Sal is a much more um contemporary witch. So I'd say it's because she's the Lilim aren't immortal because, as you can see from this, they age when they use their powers. But they age when they use their powers because they're so ancient mm-hmm. that they have to rejuvenate themselves in order to stop, like essentially, like the aging process because they are so very old. Yeah. Whereas Ditchwater Sal is sort of, in, I could be wrong. In my perception, she's just sort of like a normal. Hum- a normal person who is a witch rather than like an ancient being okay if that makes yeah. sense that's yeah. sort of what i've interpreted given the information from the book that i have okay but um so i'd say that's because although the film doesn't make it super clear they're like different types of magic wielders okay um can i also um like um ask about um about her name like Dishwater Sal. Oh, like, ditch, ditch water. That's even worse. Um, did <laughs> well, you I mean, choose her own name? To be fair, they don't have dish like dish water. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but like, did she choose to be called Ditch Water? Well, um, again, this is something which I've probably gleaned from the book rather than the film. I yeah. think it's supposed to emphasize how junior she is in comparison to the Lilim because. Um, when you know she uses Limbus Grass on Michelle Pfeiffer to get her to yeah. like tell the truth, when yeah. she does it in the book, um, Michelle the Michelle Pfeiffer's character is not named in the book. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether to call her Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me and Michelle. Me and Michelle. First name basis. <laughs> um, she thinks to herself like I wrote something along the lines of like I remember when you were a young chit of a thing and Ditchwater Sal was your name. And I Mm -hmm. think it's supposed to be that sort of hierarchy where it's like, this is this really ancient old being and she remembers when this powerful 
which was just like like a, a young girl who was called Ditchwater Sal because she was like, you know, presumably Aww. like a form of like peasant or something. I don't know. Oh, poor Sal. So like I've always read it as like this sort of contrasting of the Lilim in the book don't have names. They're like these old, endless beings. Mm-hmm. And then you have like this much newer magic wielder who has although she's powerful enough to keep this woman as a bird and stuff like she's it puts her power in comparison in like context mm-hmm. maybe okay. could be wrong feel free to tweet me <laughs> if you have more information <laughs> in um, actually to um, everything is wrong Sophie, so <laughs> i'm always aware that like i say all these things it's really my interpretation if uh-huh. any like i could be wrong allegedly yeah Take take everything I say with a grain of salt. (laughs) Oh, I have a fun fact about this, actually. About the film in general? Um, uh, No, a fun fact about the book. Ooh. Um, The book is dedicated to Jean and Rosemary Wolfe, and we will be doing a future podcast episode on Jean Wolfe. Ooh. And this is entirely accidental. Had no (laughs) idea there was a connection when we planned this. Wow. Well, because they're their friends. Uh, what, uh, no game and um, yeah, Gene Wolfe. Oh, okay. And so I, I was just like flicking through it just to like find a couple of quotes that I wanted, and then I like yeah. read the dedication, and I was like, aha, <laughs> we've accidentally come across a connection. <laughs> um, for the listeners who don't know, um, our next episode is going to be on um Gene Wolfe with the wonderful people of um Alzebo Soup podcast. So come back in a month if you like um Gene Wolfe. Yeah. And you'll hear and you'll hear more about that then. Yes. So we're sort of gonna be continuing our little fantasy focus for a couple of episodes. Which is gonna and be And then fun. next month we can be like um last month we yeah. spoke about Jude Wolf. <laughs> Throwback. And and then we'll all laugh, you know. We'll oh, be like, it'll be great. <laughs> it'll be it'll be so good. You'll all be here with us. <laughs> oh, we have fun. Oh dear. Do you think that the book to film um adaptation like um has any drawbacks? Um, I I have one like thing which I don't really like because, um, like a lot of my notes as I was going through this was like comparison points and like oh there's stuff I prefer about the book in this and there's stuff I prefer about the film in this but there is one thing about the film which I don't really like. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the climactic battle bit where they're okay. in like the house of the Lilim because um. I just, I feel like, I know it's like a Hollywood film, but I feel like that whole scene is just like a little bit too generic action film for me. Yeah. And that might not be a popular opinion because I know some people's criticisms of the book is they don't think the ending is climactic enough. So I can see how in order to do the adaptation, they've gone for like, okay, we need like a climactic scene in order to like really bring it together which i have no problem with i just feel like it goes on for so long okay you know like they get there they're doing the fight 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 they finally like defeat the two sisters and then michelle pfeiffer's like what is it all worth without my sisters go and then she like lets them like walk half the way and then she's like i was tricking you and then they have to go through like even more fight and I just, I just feel like it just goes on for so long. Okay. Um, I didn't like the fight with um with um Septimus's body <gasps> with the voodoo like, bit. Yeah, like like that. but like that takes a very long time. Uh, yeah, and it's just, I just, this is the thing. I feel like 
I understand why they, the reasoning behind it, and they were like, we need a climactic action scene for this action adventure film. Yeah. I just think they could have really shortened it and it would have had more impact. Because, yeah. like, that whole, like, voodoo fighting scene just, like, goes on. It does. And you're just like, I was like, okay, like, I really, I get it. I'm, I'm fine. Could yeah. we maybe <laughs> just, like, move forwards now? Yeah. But I have, I have a theory about why they did it. Because okay. um, I was reading about the casting, and um, Charlie Cox as Tristan was mm-hmm. something that the director, he was like, oh, this is my perfect Tristan, yes, I want him. But mm-hmm. the studio wouldn't agree to the casting, because he's like the main character, and he was like unknown at the time. So yeah. they wouldn't agree to the casting unless they managed to secure like some bigger names that they could market it against. Okay. So that's why, you know, you have like people like Robert De Niro, stuff like this, but the main one was like Michelle Pfeiffer. Once they got Michelle Pfeiffer down, the studio yeah. was like, okay, you can cast this guy. That's cool. So okay. I wonder, because in the book, the Lilim is a plot, but it's not like the plot. It's not the plot. Whereas for understandable reasons, they've like, condensed it down and they've used this as like the driving antagonist yeah but um i think probably part of the reasoning for that is because if michelle pfeiffer is their big name person who they're like primarily marketing with yeah it sort of makes logical sense for them to have her as the big antagonist as the big showdown scene and thereby like you know you're really capitalizing on that casting but um Mm -hmm. So yeah, like I kind like I understand why, but like I just just goes on. Um, like when I was watching it, like um, I was really glad. So the first thing that um, like um, the first thing that I was glad about is that I liked that the big showdown like wasn't just like man fights man with sword, like man yeah. kills man with sword. <laughs> We've seen that before. Um, like I liked like first I liked the. Michelle Pfeiffer like was the main the main villain villain of it. Yeah. Like because like um I don't know like um how the book works. Like to me it feels like the film subverts the like normal like like fantasy thing of like the fight for the kingdom like being like the fight. Yeah. I liked the Septimus died like really easily. Like <laughs> I'm like he was just like like wiped out. Yeah. And then I liked the um at the end. Um even though um Evane's like star powers at the end feel very much like a um Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. I liked the fact that she was the one who killed her. Yeah, I think um a couple of criticisms because I I've been reading about people's thoughts on the films. I've a couple of things I've come across is that some people do complain that throughout most of the film it is a little bit like she's the damsel in distress and Tristan comes yeah. along and saves her. So I think they probably were like, okay, we need to have like a moment where this character kind of gets to save herself. Yeah. So that we're not falling into that trope, which, yeah. you know, yay for that. Mm-hmm. Also, um <laughs> Isn't Michelle Pfeiffer just like fabulous in general, but also as a villain? I don't think I've seen her um like um um in much else, but um, she is a very good villain in this. Ah, uh, yeah, I've I've seen her in a couple of stuff, and I just I think she makes such a good villain. Yeah, I just think she's like, great. I like villains that can like um have like a they can sort of pull off a monologue. Yeah, I like a villain to kind of be a bit like 
bombast. They're kind of a bit like, so here is my plan. <laughs> Let me tell you everything. Exactly. Because like sometimes, like, um, it feels like that's become like a trope. So like too many people like try to like steer away from that and like make it all like realistic and like um people don't monologue in real life. But I'm just like I like the monologue. <laughs> well, like it's very dramatic. Well, how do how do you feel then about the bit? Because the bit that kind of like I don't hate it, but I'm just like really is the bit when she pretends to be like you can go and then she's like ha, 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 no you can't i'm going to make all the glass smash and i'm now going to try and kill you again <laughs> like how do you feel about that bit cuz i was i didn't love that bit cuz i was just like oh for god's sake just kill him while you've got the chance <laughs> um like that whole ending like um, it feels like like very much like a fantasy game oh yeah so I can like see um, that. i know you've not really like played many games but like most <laughs> most most kind of fantasy games like final fantasy like so you normally have the fake last boss and then you have the real last boss okay and then the last boss has like a second form so like this whole like climax like had like septimus as the fake last boss who dies like real easily then like Michelle Pfeiffer is the like real last boss. It's actually hard to fight. And then like when you think you've won, it's like, and here's my new form. <laughs> so like I sort of like I'm half like I sort of half like expected her to like sprout wings and like transform <laughs> and twist into like a brand new form that you then have to fight. But I think I like it more now that you've given this explanation. <laughs> I just wish that she had like become like a huge monster lady. Because it is is that like really overly dramatic like flair that villains have. And I think while I was watching it, because I was trying to watch it critically and I was like, yeah. oh, this ending drags out a bit for me. I was like, oh, come on, guys. Whereas now that you've said that, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of here for it. <laughs> like it's super dramatic and unnecessary, but like it makes sense. Like it's a film like in general that like like it like plays up to the tropes yeah but like but like also like like it doesn't go quite as far to like point them out like um as being tropes but like it's like it's on that way like like the whole storyline with the seven brothers like that's very like self-aware of like what like a lot of fantasy stories are that's that's very neil gaiman though like even the book itself as well as a lot of his stuff is about that awareness of tropes and yeah. how can I play off of this in ways that subvert expectations or are just like when you're reading it you're aware that they're playing with that common trope and stuff so um that I think is something which the again you know you said earlier like how has the film captured the core of the book I'd yeah. say like that's an element of it is this whole like playfulness with common tropes yeah like if I can detour slightly oh feel free like <laughs> always <laughs> um, as we always do what is this podcast uh, for if not for our own detours <laughs> <laughs> like I'm talking about like being aware of tropes and like um adapting existing things that like capture the spirit of it but transforming it into something else okay so like i said that i come um, that like i was going to do a podcast on scream okay like because i watched the netflix tv show and like 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 season one is like very very much that like they sort of keep making jokes about 
like, ooh, who's gonna die next? The killer's gonna like pick us off one by one. Like, um, it is better than that, obviously. Like, I'm, I'm yeah, not. Yeah, no. like... <laughs> we're, we're paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. But there's like one character, like who like um always has, like like has kind of like self aware monologues about like um horror film like tropes and everything. And like um even when like um characters are being killed, like it still somehow manages to be fun. Yeah. But I feel like what Scream did that this like doesn't sound as though it did is that like Scream season two, like it forgot that it was like self-aware and it like became like far too serious yeah so it's like trying to find like the balance of like trying to like push forward with like trying to make a good story like while also trying to remember what you started this for okay that's what i did like about the seven brothers in this yeah um the kind of like they kind of sat there being like she's wearing the necklace look at her yeah i i really i thought they did the brothers as spectators really well because Mm -hmm. um they that is also a feature in the book but Mm -hmm. with the film i think it works really well because they're sort of your stand-in kind of okay because you know you know when you watch like for example with horror films you watch horror films and you yell at the characters and you're like oh my god why are you going into the dark room on your own are you an idiot yeah like they're doing that for you okay and you're like oh my god you're such an idiot like it's right there and Mm -hmm. they're like verbalizing those thoughts that you have I now kind of want to see like this film, but like a Muppet version, so that like um those like like those seven brothers are just two brothers, men. yeah, yeah, like um, um and they're just Statler and Waldorf, like just being like, oh, we didn't pay for this. <laughs> oh my god, incredible! Let's write to Neil and be like, hey Neil, we've have you thought about Muppets? We've got a concept for you here. <laughs> Like I just feel like um, I could watch like um, any version of anything. Um, um if you um, have them just like being really like grumpy and like like sarcastic in the background. <laughs> like um, I am signed on. Genius. Remake Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> with but, the Muppets. Yeah, but just with the Muppets and them just like being like, oh, is this inappropriate? Probably. <laughs> Let's just remake all iconic films with the Muppets. Everyone would hate us. It would be great. People love the Muppets. The Muppets are great. I have a couple more casting thoughts, if you're interested. Um, Charlie Cox was a baby, though. He's such a baby. Um, And also, just another throwback to our Troy episode, Mm -hmm. they considered Orlando Bloom for the lead role. Oh, no. No, they need someone to act in this film. I don't want us to become known as that podcast that hates Orlando Bloom, because I'm sure he's he's a lovely man. Um, He's a big fan of this show as well. Oh, yeah. like He's going to be really hurt when he hears that we've said this behind his back. But, (laughs) like, thank God. Charlie Cox is great. And, like, I can totally... He really does seem like embody Tristan to me. So like I think they did really well by being like, actually no, this is the guy we want. But, yeah. um and also, fun fact, um, another throwback. I feel like we're creating like our own little web of like our own little universe web just from like the topics we talk about in these podcast episodes. But Sarah Michelle Geller was in the running for a vein. Oh no, no, no. Like no. I'm glad they... Like um I love her. Oh I love no, her. No, no, no. 
Claire Danes, in my opinion, does like a great job. She's perfect. She she is my favorite in this film. Oh, she's so like Evane is so such a great character. Like, like I wrote down like so many of her lines. Oh. So I was just like, oh my god, this line is amazing. She's, she's so clever. She's so witty. She's so good. Like literally, um, in the book, her first thing is like you have the falling star bit, and then it's literally just like, ow, fuck. <laughs> Ow. Really? It's literally like her first lines. <laughs> she's like fallen. <laughs> and amazing. so like this again, something that the the film carries on well is that she's so snarky she and I is. love it. Yeah, I love her. Um I I have oh yeah, okay, this is my other complaint by the way. I have like mm-hmm. two cons of the film. One is like the drawn out thing. The other one is that Ricky Gervais's character annoys the fuck out of me. <laughs> I did want to ask that actually, like um, the way the the character speaks, like um, is very Ricky Gervais. That's, like it's, it's he's, like he's making up his own lines. It's, well, he he did. I think he improvised a lot of it, and he's not yeah. he's not really a character in the books. It's literally just like they hired Ricky Gervais to be this guy, and I'm pretty sure yeah. he just improvised a bunch of it and was Ricky Gervais, and they just yeah, kept like it, in. it sounds like it, like it is him. And like I don't particularly find Ricky Gervais very funny normally, so like I mm-hmm. didn't really find him funny being this character and like it's a fun film and it's a funny film but i found it a little bit jarring because it in because it was ricky gervais being ricky gervais it sort of snapped me out of it a little bit okay because i was no longer fully in that world i was in that world but i had like this modern comedian being a comedian part way through it if that makes sense yeah like um, i feel like um i'm okay with him um in small doses yeah like um like like kind of he was in this film like just the right amount for me i would have liked him in it slightly less (laughs) just maybe not at all just you know um he is like a huge fan sophie um we're really we're really offending all of our hardcore fans in this episode i know know, like orlando and ricky they're gonna be like crying into their pillows tonight when they hear what we've said about them (laughs) but you know i'm sorry orlando bloom you're very pretty but you're not a very good actor i'm very just like wipe away the tears with money and then they'll be fine like i'm sure they'll get over it Uh, um what i did like about um charlie cox and um claire danes is that like they had a very believable relationship. Yeah. Like, it starts very, like, um, like, very, like, very kind of antagonistic. Yeah. Which, like, I, I feel like I'm, like, saying this, like, um, over and over again. But, like, I'm, <laughs> like, um, I really like couples that, like, have that snark. Yeah. So, like, um, um, even, like, um, even before they get into like properly like like falling in love with each other, yeah, like when they're just like becoming friends first, and they still have that like oh, fuck you, ha ha ha. <laughs> like I just like I just really like that. Like um like like when they're tied up on the pirate ship, yeah, like, um, and you see the first like sign of them actually like being friends, yeah. The that you're like I get this, yeah, I get it. I I find like the key moment of that for me is when Evane does that speech about watching people having adventures, because mm-hmm. it's that first moment when. You remember Tristan talking about the fact that, like, oh, like, I'm not going to be a shop boy forever. And you get that first moment where you're like, oh, actually, you're similar. Like, you've got common ground. It's not just, like, snark fest. It's, like, snark fest, but with actually, like, a (laughs) compatibility running through it. Yeah. Um, one thing um in that scene actually that I kind of um only realized when I wrote down one of those lines because I really liked it, that... 
the dialogue in it is really realistic sounding dialogue. Yeah. Like, because it, like, took me, like, a while to, like, write down the line. Mm. Like, because it is so, like, when you talk, like, you don't talk with real punctuation. Yeah. Like, you have a lot of, like, flow-ons, like, like flow-on sentences and everything. Yeah. So, like, there was one line that was, um, shop boy like me, I could never have imagined an adventure this big in order to have wished for it. Yeah. And I was like... Like, what are you saying? <laughs> like, I'm trying to write this down, but like, I don't, like, I, I, I don't understand. Like, where are the commas? Where are the full stops? Yeah. Like, where are the clauses? <laughs> <laughs> like, it does make me realize that to write good dialogue, it, like, it doesn't have to be like a real sentence. Yeah. At least in a script. Like, I'm sure it's different to like a certain degree in a book. Is that part of the book as well? Um, yeah, I think so. I didn't pick up on the dialogue so much when I was reading it, so much as other parts, other like things about the narrative. So, like, mm-hmm. um, for example, it starts with, uh, well, at least my edition has a John Donne poem at the beginning, which is about a falling star. And then throughout it, one thing that I really liked is there's lots of little rhymes and songs. So not like okay. that many, but just like occasionally, which like I liked for two reasons. One was because um, there's a lot of stuff in fairy tales about like, you know, like fae and creatures of fairy like singing, right? Like, you know, like Rumpelstiltskin has his little Rumpelstiltskin lie, like, uh-huh. and all that, you know, like, I thought that was quite a nice element of the narrative yeah and um it also reminded me of an- another throwback episode it reminded me of alice in wonderland at one point okay because there's a point um the book has a lot more i think this is something that's due to the fact that it was originally like a small comic series mm-hmm. whereas the film you know we have this overarching plot line that we have like two three storylines at any one time and they sort of merge and come together the book is a lot more like um individual encounters so mm-hmm. you have like first like when he first gets across the wall he the wall he meets x person there's like a like an episode with that person and then it's like he meets the star and there's like an episode here and then they're separated and there's an episode there and there's a lot more yeah. like little episodes okay um and one of them is there's a bit with um you know the unicorn in the film just like pops out of nowhere yeah in the book there's a scene where the unicorn is fighting a lion and they're fighting each other and um evane's like we have to save the unicorn and so tristan Mm -hmm. sees the crown and he presents the crown to the lion because it's the lion and the unicorn fighting over the crown which, mm-hmm. you know, when we did our Alice in Wonderland episode, there's a similar thing there, but, like, yeah. less brutal. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so, like, I didn't notice a lot about the dialogue as being particularly, like, noteworthy, but there were lots of little narrative details like that, which, like, caught my attention instead. Okay. Which um, I... If we can um, go back to Brutal Unicorns for a second. Okay. Which is a very strange, like, tangent. <laughs> I wrote down that like um I can't see, see unicorns um in the same way after seeing um Cabin in the Woods. Oh yeah, because there's that one monster like yeah. um who's like stabbing someone with the horn. Yeah, the... but, like every time I see them, I'm just like stop stabbing everyone unicorns. Run from the unicorn. It's dangerous. The unicorn gets like decapitated in the book. So, really? Like like the the 
a Lilim woman like mm. decapitates it and uses it as like a for a spell and stuff like jeez well like Neil Gaiman books to varying degrees often have like some form of like slight darkness to them in different quantities based on what you're reading and so mm-hmm. there is a little bit more of that in the book than there is in the film the film is a little bit more even the action moments apart from that horrific voodoo moment <laughs> most of the action is still like fun action film action whereas the book has a little bit more moments that you're like ooh she just decapitated a unicorn and is carrying its head around with her great As you do <laughs> you say that it's not really um that dark but like um i made like a lot of notes about like um like um how dark it actually is like um it's very like fairy tale in that sense um like you said before yeah like 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 there's a lot of murder there's like a lot of like um implied rape that i was like quite really surprised about it's that thing where um it kind of masks its darkness under the facade of like cheery action film yeah (laughs) because um oh god i totally had a point i was gonna say oh oh yeah um for example the seven brothers every Mm -hmm. time one of the brothers dies they have blue blood which obviously is like a pun because they're royal and like ooh, visual joke great but wait what well you know okay for example when the brother's throat is slit in the bath yeah his blood is blue yeah because there's like a saying that like blue blood your royalty okay so it's like a it's like a reference to that but also um I wonder if it's because that way they can still maintain their 12A rating. I wrote that down too. I was like, so like it's blood, but it's blue. So like, because it's not red, it's fine. (laughs) But I think it would be a lot more... It's like those ways of tricking like the board into allowing you to have a certain certificate. Because like, Mm -hmm. if the violence you're showing is not explicit or, you know, if it's not visually here is someone's bone breaking or whatever like you can get away with a lower certificate Mm -hmm. and so i think stuff like having them have blue blood and having like a lot of the darker elements not be portrayed in a very obviously dark way i think is their way of like still maintaining this 12a certificate yeah like um like um a lot of the whole like piracy stuff yeah it's like so weird i was like this is really dark and they're like <laughs> everyone's laughing at it yeah like um, he's about to go and rape her and we're all laughing i'm very confused <laughs> yeah it's i was just gonna say that my note just says i love all the silly manly awkwardness and then in capital letters i wrote gender is a performance <laughs> <laughs> i was just like <laughs> Because, like, that whole... um, I know there are a lot of people who um, say that the Captain Shakespeare sort of plotline is, like, one of the best bits about the film, Mm. and um, it's a much expanded upon thing. It's a really short segment in the book, but in the film they use it as such a focus point, and it's like... Like, you have the montage when they're on the ship, and it's really when you see them start to fall in love and stuff like this, it becomes much more of a central point. Mm. Um, But I think the something i like about that segment is that i think there is a lot of subversion that comes from that so like captain shakespeare himself is a complete subversion of what you expect the pirate captain to be and that's very like consciously done yeah and then you have like 
the makeover scene and it's like the classic makeover scene except for it's Tristan's character that's having a makeover and not a vein like it would be normally in like mm-hmm. chick flicks and stuff yeah and like again this whole like mat like there's so much humor is derived by this um like e- expectations of gender performance and the fact that this is a character who would naturally subvert that so to make up for it like portrays to the outside world like an exaggerated version of that I don't know I think because we talked a lot about how um, the book and film both play with expectations of genre Mm -hmm. I think this is a character that really like exemplifies that by his whole like being is about that like flipping expectations and maintaining illusions and stuff i don't know i just thought it was interesting yeah like um the first time the the um the kind of they're on the ship and then then you do have that that like um um and you do have that montage like that was when i was like feeling okay with the way that like they were dealing with the fact that he does have like a lot of dresses and stuff because like it wasn't like played up as a joke yeah but it was that like second time when you have septimus going on the boat and, yeah. And then it feels a bit more like we're meant to be laughing at it. Yeah, it's that thing where you... Sorry, I had nowhere to go with that. <laughs> Just continue. Um, like, um, I first wrote that I was happy that, like, it was, like, um, handled in, like, a... In, like, a that's just who he is way. Yeah. But then, like, when you have Septimus coming on, like, um, and reacting, like what the fuck yeah um you're a bit like um, are we meant to be like thinking that like um him doing this is stupid it's that thing it's difficult because septimus as a character is fairly like ambiguous because he's Mm. kind of a bad guy but he's not like your primary antagonist so they could there's like an argument where you defend the film and you say Septimus is not a character whose views we're supposed to empathize and like accept. So yeah. like to have him reacting in that way isn't a negative thing because you are he's supposed to have contrary opinions to you. Mm-hmm. But then like that's a bit convoluted and it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. And it's it is kind of one way in which the film you know, I'd be more I'd be interested to hear people's opinions of it if anyone would like to tweet us. Because it's something which me as, like, I don't necessarily think my opinion is, like, the defining opinion, oh, yeah. if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like, um, I think that it was um dealt with well, um like, um afterwards. I like the moment where um the crew are like, you'll always be our captain, captain. Exactly, yeah. Because that's that, like, bringing it back to this is this this is an aspect of the character it's not an aspect that is like worthy of mockery it yeah. is an aspect which is completely fine and accepted and the crew accepts it etc yeah but it's it is as you said that moment with septimus where you're like oh are we going there now yeah like i also wanted to say that um when they say you'll always be our captain captain to me it was like i probably not deliberate but to me it really reminded me of an um Oh fuck! What's the name of the film? You know the oh captain, my captain, Dead Poet Society. Oh, okay. Yeah, like to me, like I did, might not have been deliberate, but when they were like, "You'll always be our captain, captain," I was like, "Oh captain, my captain." <laughs> you know, like again that stepping up and being like defending what is right and fine. This seems like an opportune moment to go into this week's fashion watch. 
I say that because my first fashion watch point that I would like to discuss is related to Septimus, mm-hmm. who apparently in my notes I have written as Severus, which is crossing <laughs> my <laughs> my things. Uh, it's like when you had um, Felicia, Alicia. Oh yeah, Felicia, Alicia. <laughs> Sometimes I just write things and I just look back and I'm like, what? But I just wanted to say about how Severus... Oh, Severus. Severus Septimus. Snape. When Severus walked in and I, um, everyone was like, what the fuck are you doing everyone here, Everyone was Severus? like, what are you doing here, Snape? <laughs> but um, Septimus is constantly dressed in full leather, which is absolutely like film visual code for like, he's the bad boy oh, yeah. of the film. You yeah. know, like, always full leather. Just, yeah. he's there. Like black hair, black clothes, like black yeah. soul. Like you can see why I'm I'm tripping up and saying Severus Snape because they could be each other. Like he's probably like a little bit more like literally cutthroat, mm-hmm. but you know, like it's like they've got they've got the same hairdo. It's true. It's all very like dark. Like um, that is one thing that like going back to the tropes thing that like they like coat him as the villain by like dressing him in black on purpose. He's very visually coded to be the villain Mm -hmm. but at the same time he is not the villain of the film yeah he is like a sub antagonist that well he's it's like he's chaotic neutral really i would call him evil i would say like neutral evil maybe i would say one thing you have to take into account though is that he is the product of the culture in which he grew up in yeah the culture of that um aristocracy is you're supposed to kill off all your brothers so that you're the remaining heir and yeah. you inherit the throne. Like, if you take that as context, yeah. I feel like that makes him more neutral than evil because he's not kill- He's not out killing everyone and anyone. Mm-hmm. He's very specifically completing the task that he needs to complete to get the outcome which is expected of him. It's true, like, he sort of doesn't go, like, um outside um, of the core mission, I guess. Yeah, so, like, Michelle Pfeiffer's character is, like, evil, and then Septimus is sort of, like, that's why I say, like, chaotic neutral, because, like... She's lawful I'm... evil, though, I reckon. Like, it's... she's got a code. Yeah. Yeah. It's, she's much more, like, your stereotypical villain, yeah. whereas he's much more ambiguous and does dodgy stuff, but, like, not in a explicitly evil way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of want to, like, um, go through the whole cast now and be like, so, like, where do they fall on an alignment grid? But we should stay on, stay on fashion while we're here. Yes, to transition, yeah. I do also have a fashion watch comment about Michelle Pfeiffer. Number one, Michelle Pfeiffer is gorgeous, and, like, you're beautiful, Michelle, if you're listening. I love you. I'm, I'm a big fan, big fan. Big fan, Michelle. Yeah. Huge fan. <laughs> um, she has such a look. Oh my god. Um, you know the bit? She's like stood on a cliff and she's throwing the runes and she's got like this big billowing skirt and mm-hmm. like the dress that she's wearing has like those really long like tulle, tulle, I never know how to say that word, but like netting essentially, like the black okay. netting flowing and like the wind is blowing, her hair is blowing. She's like, have you, have you ever seen, <laughs> you remember, um, do you remember from like the 90s, the adverts for Scottish Widows? No. It's like this woman in like a big black cape, like walking <laughs> along a Scottish cliff. Okay. And they're like, it's like, it's like a life insurance company or something. They do like that sort of thing. Year after year, 
after year. Scottish widows for life, pensions and investments. And I feel like Michelle is really working that in this scene. <laughs> like she's is that on a compliment. A... Well, I mean, to be fair, the Scottish widow's woman is pretty hot. Like if you Google her, <laughs> like she's got it going on. And like Michelle's doing the same. She's just being like casually stunning, like on a cliff, like okay. throwing some runes. And it's just so dramatic. And I really feel like like the costume like really reflects that. It's like full skirt, flowing arms, like it's really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But then like as her character starts to decay as she uses more magic, she's still wearing the same dress. Okay. But they sort of like decay the dress alongside her. I didn't notice so, that. That's pretty cool. Well, when she's in like the full flush of youth, if you will, like it's yeah. fully, like it's dramatic and it's like making a statement. And then the more magic she uses, the more like worn the dress kind of gets. And okay. I don't know, like it's not something you like necessarily pick up on, but she's not like just an older woman in the same clothes. Like the clothes, like sort of have that fade with her which mm-hmm. was just like quite cool mm-hmm. um what did you think of um tristan's like swashbuckling outfit i quite like tristan's swashbuckling outfit i just think like the coat is such like a look it's very classic it's very like they've really gone for like he's a swashbuckling adventure thing yeah you know like it's He's on an airship and he's wearing his long coat and he's got all of his, like, he's got his sword at his belt and then the lightning over his shoulder and he's, like, your rugged adventurer type thing. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, I think... I quite... I like the longer hair. I have a question about the hair. Okay. In, like, um, in the universe of the film, like, um, I wasn't sure if, like, him going from short hair to long hair was him, like, being given a wig in the universe um or if it was like being played off as like um he's such a good um, hairdresser that like he like like cuts the hair and it just like becomes long i think it's like the casual magic of fairy okay you know because they're not in our world anymore yeah and i think it's just like part of that you know like it's just magic okay like just cuz magic well, like, there's a lot more casual magic stuff in the book. Okay. And because of, like, all the little interactions he has, like, at one point he's talking to a tree, stuff like this, like, and I think it's, like, a nod to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but... Okay. That like, was just... I'm, I'm okay with just, like, a bit of... Because it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, just, I'm, like, I'm used to that. going with it. Yeah. Um, my final thing is um, we need to talk about how utterly gorgeous Vane looks in the midnight blue waltzing dress and there onwards. It is so beautiful. Like, I, okay, I really need to just like walk you through the look. Like mm-hmm. her hair, number one, Claire Danes with the really pale blonde hair, like perfect choice. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then like she has like her really long hair most of the time. And then they go on the ship and she has that gorgeous updo and it's like, it sort of twists round from the front into the back and then there's like this complicated like twisted knot arrangement. Okay. And um, I, I found on Google Images and I saved because I'm going to be a bridesmaid in the new year mm-hmm. and um, I had to send pictures of what my ideal bridesmaid hairdo would look like okay. for the bride. And I genuinely like saved someone did like a compilation of screenshots showing you all the angles of this hairdo <laughs> and i like sent it to the person who was going to be my sister-in-law and i was like that just 
you know, something like this, maybe? <laughs> I love an updo. Oh, it's, I, it's yeah. it suits her so well. Like, it looks so absolutely darling. Like, real, like, classic, old beautifulness. I don't know. I think it really plays into, like, this sort of, like, faux Victorian inspired universe that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, can I just go back to singing the praises of Evane's dress yes, quickly? Yes, sorry. Because I just, I'm just like, I'm super in love with it. I just think it's utterly beautiful. And um, it has like these tiny adorable little cap sleeves that are done of like some sort of like meshy material so you can like see through them and it's super floaty. And she has like such a lovely bodice that has like dark blue velvet with like the blue of the dress in like a panel and then it comes out to the full skirt and they do like the waltzing scene and the waltzing scene like melts me because it's so lovely and beautiful Mm -hmm. and um later when they're walking across all the hills she also has like a matching um little traveling cape and Oh, the cape is beautiful. I'm having like a whole thing with like capes at the moment where I really want one, but I also know that it won't suit me. Are they so... something that like people actually wear? Okay. <laughs> there is a woman called Amber Butchart who has like the most fabulous fashion sense. Mm-hmm. And I follow her on Instagram and she wears a lot of little capes. Okay. That are, and, you know, like cape coats and like little traveling capes and stuff. So now I'm like let's bring back capes let's make capes be a thing i'm on board with this not like you know i don't want to be like dracula oh yeah yeah or the scottish widow <gasps> or woman. should you should you be dracula everyone should be dracula all the time <laughs> <laughs> let's just like bring back all capes from like tiny traveling capes to like full-on i'm a creature of the night <laughs> let's just like make it work oh, it's winter well it's winter when recording it still will be yeah okay, good. it's fine. still contemporary <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just like, that's the end of this week's fashion watch. But what a fashion watch we've had. I, just as an addendum to this week's fashion watch, I also wanted to do like an honourable mention mm-hmm. because um, I really hope I'm about to say this right. Ilan Eshkari is the composer for this film. Mm-hmm. And I just think the score is really beautiful and very well done. Like, I feel like it adds so much to the film. Like, it's all like, there's so many like swells of strings and um, I just, sorry, just really like, I'm having a moment where I'm really overly <laughs> enthusiastic about everything. But if anyone has YouTube open, um, if you listen to the song called Tristan in a Vein, or the song called Evane, those two are like the exemplifying what I mean by how good the score is, because I just think they're beautiful. Like, Tristan and Evane has like an element that reminds me of like the Hobbits theme from Lord of the Rings. Okay. You know, you know when they're like in the Shire, it's those beautiful moments where it's just so like, it feels like home. And oh <laughs> God, I love the Shire music. Tristan and Evane has an element of that to me. Okay. And then the song that's just called Evane has, like, it begins with, like, this choral bit, mm-hmm. which has, like, such an absolute celestial feel to it. Okay. Which just uh, really works. And when I was, 
like thinking about why I think it works really well as a film, I was just like, we need to have an honourable mention to the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. I, I do like when kind of characters um have themes, and then yeah. you like, and then you like go back to it afterwards, and you're like, oh my god, they played this song all the time, and like, yeah. I, I didn't ever notice. Well, it's like with Lord of the Rings, every now and then, like if they're talking about the Shire or something, you get like the little like like plays. Yeah, yeah I, just, I know words. Oh, it makes me like like the final Hobbit film because mm. it ends in the Shire. They brought that bit back in, and like that was the bit that like made me weep in the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it. Uh. One thing that I noticed that I did did enjoy about this film okay. is that I like the fact that, and um, like this is gonna sound like like the negative, okay, but like it's got like a really really like simple like um overarching plot, yeah, that you can like summarize like really really easily, and you wouldn't miss like um any of the major like plot points in the film, yeah. But I also love that it takes the time to like use that really like like simple plot like um of just like um like him going going to find the star like of um, him like like him bring the, bringing the star back um, other people want the star and then it like uses that to like use the journey like it's not a really like about like the end goal yeah like this whole film is about the journey that they go on to get while they're like trying to get from point a to point b it's such a classic like coming of age thing isn't it it kind of is isn't it yeah but um i think that's something the film does really well is because the book has a lot more like individual episodes and stuff i think because they simplified that and went for an overarching like plot for the film you get to like flesh characters out a little bit more and you get Mm -hmm. maybe a bit more depth to them than there might be in the book where they're a little bit more like of a passing moment yeah which is good like um um and the fact that that like um it's a story that does the like world like like world expanding well see i have a a thing about this because um something i found interesting as like a fantasy book there are a lot of iconic fantasy books like for example the game of thrones world lord of the rings world like a common marketing thing for them is that you can buy like a map of the world yeah whereas i feel like with this both film and book you couldn't really like map out what fairy looks like very well based on the information you're given but you still get this really wonderful like expanded world yeah it's just like a little bit more like free yeah well like um a lot of those those big fantasy stories um, is that like it's like normally about like going like from like small named village to like big named town to like big named city to like like to the capital so you have these like big like like big points where you have to be like oh we're like traveling like west now for like 200 miles yeah so then you like start to build up like a scale of the map but it's just like it's more of like a we're going like somewhere that way and and, like as long as we get back there in time then it doesn't matter like because of the way that like time is a bit 
like warped in general like they're only meant to be there for what like a week yeah but like they go through like a lot in that time so like you sort of come to like expect it as like a like time doesn't really matter so you don't like um so you don't get the chance like to build up that world because you don't really need to it's like he's just completely wandering yeah um i had a um what i just said um a minute ago about characters i do have one little contradiction for that which i just like to mention is the and it kind of relates to this time thing as well is um i prefer the victoria in the book to the victoria in the film okay because in the film she's just like fully like spoiled little girl who's sort of playing him type thing oh yeah whereas um i find her much more you can really empathize with her a lot more in the book because um she's not like such like a she doesn't like play with tristan so much in the book she's they go on the picnic thing and he's like oh i'll bring you back the star and she doesn't yeah. she doesn't believe that he will so she's like oh okay bring me back the star whatever mm-hmm. and then he does and then um when he comes back at the end of it all in the book it hasn't just been a week because fairy time is different to human time okay it's been a lot longer and she's been absolutely um there's a she like he arrives back and she sits him down and then they have like this talk and he because you get his thoughts in it and it's like he can tell that it's something that she's rehearsed the whole time he's been away mm-hmm. and she starts off and she's like i've had to live each day with the possibility that i have sent you to your death and you get okay. like this much more sympathetic character where you can see that she just thought he was a stupid kid who was like saying this stuff and she didn't think he was going to go through with it and then he does and yeah. then every single day that he's away she has to live with like what if he dies and never comes back or yeah. what if he does come back and because she's promised in the book whatever his heart desires and she's like well what if he does come back and then like I have to go through with this promise mm-hmm. and um, in the as a in the film, the guy who she is engaged to is much more of like a a fop and a complete dick, essentially. <laughs> fop is a great word. Yes. <laughs> you know, like he's so like this pretension of gentlemanly where there's like there's nothing yeah. there's no depth there. Whereas yeah. in the book it's um he's a older man who owns the shop and um they actually genuinely like each other he's proposed to her the night before she goes on this picnic with Tristan and then Tristan disappears and then she doesn't feel like she can marry this guy because she's made this promise to Tristan that he's gone and like run off with and it's like this big turmoil and it's lovely because Tristan comes back and he's like you know you didn't promise to marry me you promised me my heart's desire and then she's like super panicked and being like oh god are you about to be a creep and he's like I want nothing more than for you to marry Mr. Monday. And they get married and it's lovely and like hurrah. And it's it's much more of like a like they're people. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than obviously like in the film. And I get it because it's a film and you ham things up and they're funny and lol. Yeah. But like she is just like <laughs> well, you know, like they're both tropes. Yeah. It's like, oh, spoiled rich girl that plays with men and 
ooh, fop who has no depth, and the women like him because he seems to be cool, but we all know he's a loser. Mm-hmm. And, like, they're perfect for each other, except they're never going to be happy, even though they're married, and lol isn't that hilarious, let's laugh at the fact that they've got a rubbish marriage. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I like the the Victoria angle a little bit more in the book, because I feel like she's a trope in the film, but she's a character in the book. Okay, yeah. Um, I have two things. Okay. So is so um is the guy called uh, Mr. Monday? You said in the film, I think he's Mr. Black or something. Well, um, I just asked because in um in like American Gods, like you have Mr. Wednesday. Yeah. So is so is there like a Mr. Friday like um in like a different book? Actually, um, the thing about the book is um as well as the songs and rhymes that I mentioned in the book, there's also a couple yeah. of prophecies in the book that are like mentioned from time to time. Okay. And um, with Una, Tristan's mother, in the book, she is um the slave of Ditchwater Sal until a prophecy is fulfilled, and the prophecy is. Um, she's bound to be a slave until the day that the moon lost her daughter and two Mondays come together. So, mm-hmm. obviously, like, at, to the witch, it's like, haha, this is never going to happen. Whereas, in actuality, the moon lost her daughter, that's a vein falling from the sky, and two Mondays yeah. coming together is Victoria and Robert getting married. Because then they okay. become two Mondays who are brought together. And okay. so, in the book, it becomes this um, Tristan going back and saying, I'd love nothing more than you to get married as soon as possible. That's what um, frees his mother from the enchantment and breaks that spell. Okay. So, whether okay, or not cool. it's something that is also like, oh, I'll continue this in a later book, I don't yeah. know. But it has, like, it does have some significance in this. Mm-hmm. My second thing that I did notice about. Um... About um Humphrey in the film. Humphrey. See, even his yeah. name is so much more of a <laughs> dick name. Like, like it's very pompous. Humphrey Black versus Robert Monday. <laughs> yeah. Like... At the very end. Yeah. When you have that scene where um where um him and um what's her name? Oh, Victoria. Um, yeah. Like where they're in the crowd. Yeah. And then you have um Shakespeare as well in the crowd. Yeah. And then like Shakespeare like winks at them. Yeah. And then, like, it, like, looks as though, like, um, it sort of looks as though Humphrey, like, tries to wink back, but it's, like, a blink. It's implied that, like, Humphrey is gay and Captain Shakespeare is gay and, or at least, like, both interested in men. And yeah. they're, they're gonna be, like, and he's, like, ooh, flirty. But what I was so confused by is that, like, it looks as though, um, like, Henry Cavill's, like, trying to do a wink, <laughs> but, like, he can't wink and he's, like, blink, to be, two eyes. To be fair. As someone who also can't wink, I feel his really? pain. Really? Okay, like, I technically, <laughs> I can wink, but again, I probably look more like I'm blinking. I just, I don't have, I don't have control over my face. This is why, I, this is why, okay, soapbox, I cannot be an actor because uh-huh. I have no control over my face and it just, like, shows what I'm feeling. Okay. I, I, this isn't, yeah. So I can really empathise with Henry because... I also cannot wink. It was just amazing. Like I'm, I was just like so confused. I was just like, wait, 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 what? Like wind pack? Um, is that a wink? But I also don't know how I feel about that moment because it's really played for laughs. And um, something that annoys me is when comedy is built around people just being in a really awful relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like okay. okay. Like for example. Um, 
have you ever watched Everybody Loves Raymond? Yeah. Okay, you know how, like, so much of, like, for example, part of the comedy of that is the two grandparents. It's like, lol, they hate each other, but they've been married for so long. Mm. And you have, like, you always have that thing where it's like, there's a really shrill shrill wife, and her, like, husband just, like, is always like, oh, why you gotta be so naggy? But lol, it's funny. Like, I just, I don't find stuff like that very funny. (laughs) To be fair, though, like, those two characters are very much like my grandparents, actually. So, like, there are some episodes um, of that show, like, where you do get the chance, like, to see that, like, like they do both actually, like, really love each other. But, like, that's just, like, um how they interact. See, this is the thing, like, I used Everybody Loves Raymond as an example because I was on holiday and had okay. limited <laughs> hotel, like, TV stations and, like, it was on and yeah. I caught an episode of it. I'm not, like, super familiar with it, but there's, like this trope where you have yeah, like yeah i see a point yeah. you know when they were and they're like oh the old ball and chain and it's like well why are you married to each other mm-hmm. and it's just like maybe i'm just like projecting because it's a trope that i dislike but just mm-hmm. like that bit where it's like oh he doesn't even like the ladies they're now trapped in a loveless marriage forever oh, and yeah. you're supposed to like laugh and i'm like but no <laughs> yeah like um i do see like um how things like that um, from that point of view, it's wrong. It's not really yeah. like a massive criticism I have of the film. It was more mm-hmm. like that moment then made me remember that that's something that I don't like. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm okay. not really saying yeah. this film is like a huge like te- like pro- progressor of that narrative. I was just like, ah, oh. mm-hmm. you know, we have soapboxes. It's one of my soapboxes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you don't have to include this bit in the episode. I just like needed <laughs> to like complain to someone. I have. A couple of things which I just wanted to... They sort of don't fit under anything we've really talked about, but I kind of wanted to mention them because they're just things I really like. Okay. Um, And it's just two moments, really. One of them is I really liked in the building of the Tristan and Evane romance. Mm-hmm. Um, I have obvious scenes which I really like. Like the waltzing scene is very obviously like romantic and stuff. Oh, that's such a good scene. Oh, it's, it's so nice. It's... Like it's just nice it's so lovely but then i really like slightly later on you know the bit when they're walking along the road and they hear like a car or something so they're like oh let's hide in the bush and like a car what when they hear a car going oh past. No, no, no oh i meant to say like a cart <laughs> sorry that was the accent <laughs> but you know like um a vein's on the floor and tristan's on top of her uh-huh. Um, there's just like this tiny moment which I only really like consciously noticed on this most recent watch and um, they're talking about blah 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 and she goes are you tempted and she's talking mm-hmm. about like um, I can't remember the specifics but she's talking about like are you tempted to do whatever I don't know mm-hmm. um, but he ever so slightly moves closer as if he's about to kiss her and then she yeah. says like whatever the actual context was and he's like oh no backfire (laughs) abort mission but it's just like that tiny little moment where it's like you can see that they're both like getting there where they're starting to be like maybe there's something here and he just moves ever so slightly closer and i just thought Mm -hmm. it was really lovely and then she has the same like moment when he's talking about i think it's about living forever isn't it and he says about how, okay, yeah. like, oh, I, did, I wouldn't be tempted unless, I guess, if you had someone to share it with, someone you love. 
and mm-hmm. her glow fades ever so slightly because she thinks he's talking about Victoria when actually he's talking about her. Yeah. And you know that moment before couples get together when they're misunderstanding each other because they think they're talking about other people but they're talking about each other. Okay. It's yeah. just like it's like a tiny like encapsulated moment of that. I thought mm-hmm. it was lovely. Um, I do really like her like um um her glowing as like a plot conceit. Oh, isn't it just so beautifully done? It is. It's just like, um, even though, like, um, um, I would hate that, um, in real life to be like, um, I'm attracted to you, so I'm glowing. Yeah. But, like, why are you glowing? Nothing. But, like, visually for a film, like, yeah. it's such in an inspired the, in the film, idea. And she keeps doing, like, the what do stars do? And you're like, hey, we know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. my, my final, um, little nice thing I wanted to say was, um, yeah. In relation to that, I think they do a lot of really good visual stuff. Specifically, I really love how they do scene transitions. Because, um, like, when they're waltzing, it pans up to the moon. And then the moon turns into the, the coin that's spinning, which the witch woman is using to interact, to um, bribe Ricky Gervais's character. And then okay, at the yeah. end of that scene, when he's squawking, his squawking turns into seagulls that are on the coast that they're walking down. And all of the like transitions between all the different scenes, sort of, they have like this interconnectedness. And like, in my head, I was sort of comparing it to like how like transitions happen within a chapter and how you like flow from one thing to another. Um, mm-hmm. And so there was just like that and the glowing, and I just thought there was some really like well done visual film stuff. But I'm not like filmy enough to be able to be like, here's some fancy words. Yeah. But <laughs> um, on that vein, like um, I really liked the the scene towards the beginning um like with all the tiles like when you have that one um tile guy like throwing the tiles in the end like then you have um and you have um and you have michelle pfeiffer doing it yeah the room at the same time yeah 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 yeah. it's all that it's the way that they transition because when you have like multiple storylines yeah it can sometimes you know they it's difficult because they seem separate Whereas, because I think they do all this gorgeous editing and transitioning, it keeps all those stories feeling interrelated and you really get the sense that, like, these are all happening at the same times rather than just, like, we are with these people and now we are with these people. Like, I don't know, I just think it was... I just think it was really well done. Yeah, like, it felt like um, a convergence. Yeah. I have a lot of notes that are just, like, a bit stupid. Okay. <laughs> so, um, one of them is um, at the beginning when the old king is dying, and you mm. know we've talked about this before. When characters say things that are for the audience's benefit, not the benefit of the plot, like yeah. I mean, like in in world. And there's the bit where he's like Una, and then they're like, "Oh no, Una's not here." And I just wrote down <laughs> the casual dropping in of Una, like, "Yes." Who can guess if we will see Una before the end of the film? I wonder. Like, I actually forgot that. Like, okay. I, um, I genuinely forgot that. Like, um, like um, I didn't make that kind of connection at all. Maybe this is maybe this is one of those moments where the book has influenced my watching of the film because I was like, oh, that's subtle. But yeah, actually... like um, I see how like um, if you are like thinking about it, like um, if you do like um, if you do, like if you do like engage your brain and like try to like see how the film is going to unfold yeah then 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 like that is like a big like eh, 
Uh, it was just one of those moments where I was just like, okay, lol. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also really loved the bit where um, Evain is on the unicorn and she's just like complaining about Tristan. And she's like, on and on, Victoria this, Victoria that. <laughs> and I just wrote, drag him. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, Like, she did have a lot of, like, like, good burns. Oh, she is, like, it's so on it. <laughs> Like there was one where she was like, um, "Tell me about Victoria." Yeah. And then I'm he- I'm he was like, um, "I like her." A kind of she was like, "Mm hmm, mm hmm." Yeah. <laughs> Told <me> you. <laughs> and um, another bit. I'm mostly just telling you bits that I found funny now. Yeah. Um, I have two more bits I found funny. Mm-hmm. The moment that Tristan just like runs into the coach, I just found it really funny. <laughs> He just goes, like, full force, just, like, smack okay. bang into it. And then after that, the bit when um, Quintus is in the bathtub and mm-hmm. Evane's, like, walked in the room. And so he, like, starts trying to make casual conversation. And you just hear, like, the background of it whilst other things are happening. But okay. he literally just starts spilling his entire life story. He's like, <laughs> travelling alone? I'm travelling in a carriage that belonged to my late father who just died and I'm searching. And you're like, oh my god, <laughs> she does not care about your life story. To be fair, we've sort of all been like, um, like um, in that kind of... Yes! Like, in that kind of conversation That's before. That's why I found like, it so uh-huh. funny. <laughs> Even in this fairy world, you still have that one guy who doesn't understand that you don't know him, therefore you don't want to hear about his life. Yeah, like, when you've, like, turned away from the whole conversation. It's like, do you understand, like, social cues? Yeah, she's, like, edging away, and he's just like, yeah. huh, and then I've just buried my father. I also have a note that, um, gonna admit, don't know why I wrote it. I just say, real talk. How do we feel about goats? <laughs> I love that. It's amazing. I um just in general or logically, I understand that I would have written this when Michelle Pfeiffer turns the guy into a goat. Yeah. Not entirely sure why I felt like I needed to poll how everyone feels about goats. Oh, like, like one thing that I do, like, um, have to say about that. Okay. That scene is that, um, I always feel like really bad, like when you can see, like, like a very like specific, like, um, casting call they've put out. Oh, man who like, looks similar to goat. Exactly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, um, imagine being like, um, called up like by your agent. Yeah. Um, and they're like, so we've got an amazing part for you. Um. It, it's in Stardust, alongside uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, it's called Goatman. Um, you look very much like a goat, so I'm I'm gonna put you up for it. Yeah. Oh, cool, cool, good. <laughs> like it's like when you see like someone like who sort of called out as being like really ugly, like I'm in the film, and you're like, ooh, they had to cast that yeah, person. Yeah, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I'm like, um, him. Um, he's the most ugly person. Yeah. Cast him, and you're like. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the part. Um, I feel good about myself right now. Also, I think I've realised why I wanted to know what people feel about goats. Okay, how exciting. Um, Just like, backstory. When I was yeah. a small child one time, and I went to like a like uh, animal 
sanctuary place. I went uh-huh. into like a pen where you could feed the goats, but because okay. I was at the time smaller than the goats, I was <laughs> slightly stampeded because goats were like, <laughs> oh, this person's got some food, and they sort of all came to me. And I remember now for a while I was afraid of goats. Is there like a video of you like fleeing from goats? Oh, this like, was this was like I'm pretty sure I was like four years old, so like oh, okay. this is not like let's film her sort of era, <laughs> unless we had like a video recorder at the time, which we did not. We were not that I see. cool. But yeah, this makes sense now. I've answered okay. my own question. Everything comes together. It all in the end brings together by mild childhood traumas. <laughs> At the end of each episode, we assign a number of flailings to the thing that we've been discussing. You can see our ranked number of flailings list over on mightyville.com and a companion post to go along with this episode. How many flailings do you give Stardust? Okay, um, I don't want you to be offended. Oh, I won't, don't worry. I did like it, but like, um, like, um, if we're talking about, like, how, like, obsessed I am with it, like, um, I can't say that, like, I'm going to go away from this and, like, watch it again and, like, read the book and everything yeah like i enjoyed it like i enjoyed watching it but like now that i've done it i've done it yeah so i feel like i have to give it like a six and a half i think that's fair like it's definitely very good but like i feel like this rating is like an obsession rating yeah and like i'm just not like obsessed with it yeah i'm gonna give it i think a seven Okay. Um, because I I always wheel it out as my example of a really good book to film adaptation. Yeah. And I've watched the film quite a bit and I've read the book a couple of times. Um it's not my favourite Neil Gaiman book and mm-hmm. I have ones which I think are I enjoyed more slash have stayed with me in my brain more, that sort of thing. Okay. And it's not like one of my favourite films of all time. But it's a film which, like, if I want, like, a fun action-adventure fantasy film, I'll stick it on. And if I want, like, just a nice, easy, little fairy tale-esque read, then I'll reread the book. That sort of thing. So I think it's, like, a solid 7 out of 10. But I'm actually not overly obsessed with it. I just Mm -hmm. enjoy it and think it's well done. I feel like... Most, like, fantasy um, adventure, like, properties are, like, generally quite bad, but they're fun. Yeah. Like, this, like, stands out as, like, um, as something that's fun, but it's also good. Yeah. I mean, I mainly wanted to include it in this podcast so that I could sort of counterpoint the Troy episode and be like, look, you can do it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. And that's the end of this episode of You Know What I Like. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, and please leave a rating and a review. It helps other people find the show, and we'd love to be able to flail at more people. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to us ramble, and please follow the podcast on Twitter at YKWILpodcast, or drop us an email at YKWILpodcast at gmail.com. There is also a monthly post that goes up on MightyFill.com, so check over there to see that. Come back next month where we'll get overly excited about Gene Wolfe's The Sorcerer's House with Alzebo Soup. See you then. Bye.